This week, we welcome Matt Cawthorn and Juan Canales for an honest conversation about response. In the leadership and communication sections, profile of the post-pandemic CISO, time to rethink business continuity and cybersecurity, protecting remote workers, productivity and performance, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Week. Most breaches are caused by exploiting oversights and basic cybersecurity fundamentals. But complex, hybrid, multi-cloud infrastructures make cybersecurity hygiene challenging. Red Seal can help. It shows you what's on your network, how it's connected, and the associated risk across public cloud, private cloud, and physical environments. With Red Seal, you'll get control of your cybersecurity fundamentals so you can protect your organization from the inevitable attack vectors and reduce your cyber risk. For more information, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Red Seal. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 179, recorded July 6, 2020. Hope everyone had a safe and happy July 4th weekend. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado. Joining me from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island is my co-host, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. And we have Jason Albuquerque on the lines remotely back this week after a week out. Great to be back, Matt. Yeah, one of these days we all have to get into studio. I don't know when, but we just got to figure we it do. out. Well, we're going to work on it. <laughs> we are looking for high quality guest suggestions for all of our podcasts to fill our Q3 recording schedule. Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We just reviewed them last week, but every couple weeks we review them, approve them, and then Sam will reach out to schedule something to get you on the podcast. Also, with all the recent changes to Black Hat and DEF CON, we realize we can keep doing what we do best, host virtual podcasts. I'm proud to announce Hacker Summer Camp 2020, a Security Weekly virtual live stream event, August 3rd to August 6th, 2020. To reserve your slot now, visit securityweekly.com forward slash summer camp 2020. Matt Cawthorn is no stranger to the show. He is responsible for all security implementations and leads a team of technical security engineers who work directly with customers and prospects. Matt is often on-site with customers working to solve the complex and mission-critical business problems that Fortune 1000 and Global 2000 companies face. And speaking of customers, Juan Canales is a senior manager of enterprise security and architecture at a private health organization where he designed the data centers and IT cloud strategy. He is uh, a leading security professional with more than 20 years of experience in computer, network, and information security. He has worked in high-tech, manufacturing, financial, and healthcare verticals. Matt and Juan, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, we always love a customer perspective, Juan. When, you know, when we get the opportunity to do this, it's great because you really bring insights into some of the challenges you're facing uh, in your organization. I think it, it just really helps people understand some of those challenges and, and how to solve them. We're going to talk response today. 
And what does response mean? You know, and, and the way I kind of summarize this, right, when we look at the NIST cybersecurity framework, there's identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. But the way people talk about response uh, can vary in different disciplines in security. Uh, for some people, it's automated remediation, and for others, it's, it's human manual incident response. Um, and so let's start a little bit talking about some of the challenges with what does response mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, for me, response really depends on the type of event because uh, it really starts there. We can all have uh, something happen in the network, and we could react to that event. And in some cases, we could uh, send an email. In some cases, it could be correlate with other logs. Right, and so response could be defined by an action according to an event that happened. Right now, what type of uh, or what additional actions do you perform uh, could become your response? And so that's that's the way I see it. Is it really depends on the type of event that happened. Yeah, and when we think about some of the the um, kind of technology kind of security areas, we think about endpoint detection response for a second, right? One of the examples we throw out in the description, and a lot of that has to do with what can the endpoint do to automatically respond to events that it's seen, but that's not the end of response either, even though maybe a tool took an automated action, there's still more to response than just that tool automation component, isn't there? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, Today, we look at reports or we look at an event that got raised in, in the system. And one of the things that commonly happens is that there has to be some interpretation on what do we do next. And part of that requires human intervention. So in my case, I, I do a lot of automation and I use a lot of different security tools. One example is XROP and Splunk. Those are key tools that uh, security professionals use. And what I find myself doing is that we need to correlate all the information as much as possible and put together uh, a timeline of what ha what happened. And the the automation tool will only get you so far. So you still need someone to look at uh, the event and determine what is the, um, what's it called, the impact of, of that event. Did it really impact just one user or did it impact the entire organization? And that's how I determine whether we need to elevate this event to an incident. And that incident also requires us to uh, summarize it into a, a, uh, a final report. And the tool, whether you can automate what to do with an, an actual event, does not get you to the point where you need to create a summary that needs to be delivered to the executive team. Right. And, and Matt, when I think about events and escalating them to incidents and extra hop, right, he talked about some of that correlation between ExtraHop and Splunk, for example, from, from a yep. SIM perspective. You know, how, how does that kind of 
also translate and correlate with, with what you guys are doing in, in ExtraHop as well. Yeah, I mean, it, first of all, that distinction is a really interesting one to make the difference between a discrete event and an incident. And it's worth thinking about for everyone's practice, how, how, how you draw those lines. And then what data sources do you use? This is a very sort of common drum that I myself beat and, uh, and at ExtraHop we beat is, you know, you really do want multiple sources of data to inform your decisions and your assessment to help adjudicate an incident or an event, as well as to respond to it and recover. So Splunk is a wonderful example of a SIM sort of log-based data source, and everyone should be doing that. Then there's the network component, and lastly, it would be an EDR, some sort of endpoint. And between those three things, what you'll find is they give you, I, I really believe in Pareto's law. And so it gives you sort of for 20% of the investment in tooling, it gives you 80 plus percent of your coverage from a security perspective. And so thinking about your practice and from a, from a detection perspective, as well as an IR um, perspective, thinking about your practice along the boundaries of these data sources will really, really help because we, we complement each other in various ways. And we all have our own constraints and our own limitations, and we're very, very complementary when you're using them in the way that, that Juan is using us, which is in sort of concert to help inform your decisions with data. So you identified three of Paul's four quadrants. Mm -hmm. You forgot threat intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, that also plays a very important set of data into this response discussion as well, doesn't it? It does. Yep. I totally agree. Threat intel, you, would, you could easily count that as a fourth. Yep. Right. Uh, my my question is... I have a... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Juan. Oh, I, I, I was going to say that I have an example of where you need to uh, do some intelligence and see whether you do this an event is actually an incident. Uh, one example is on my extra tool, we got an alert. Uh, a developer triggered an exfiltration event after further analysis and correlation with all the tools, we determined that the event was uh, triggered because the developer was querying a database and at the same time streaming a YouTube video in high definition. So that combination caused um, like a false positive. It, it was the developer triggering a, a query on sensitive data but at the same time, it was masked with YouTube uh, networks, uh, network network packets. And so we were able to determine that that incident or that event not, did not need to be escalated to an incident. It's an interesting use case, you know, with people now, you know, working remotely, you could see a lot of streaming potential activities while they're also multitasking, doing something else, which together correlated could be uh, sure. classified as an event. Yeah. yeah and that can be job related too. I don't know why people have gotten away from actually writing posts and just posting videos instead, but you know, I was configuring some security software and the documentation, the best source I could find was a video. So I had that yeah. video going like while I was on the <laughs> command, like, like trying to, you know, fast forward and, and follow along. So. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. What, so, so one, that particular use case, just to just to walk that through and land it back on incident response, you know, from from a developer's perspective, we would see that developer system connecting to a, 
a critical asset, which would be a database, running queries, which could be correlated with staging, and then the subsequent exfil out the front end via SSL, right? And so those behaviors taken together and given context look suspicious. But to your point, when you're making that distinction, you need the investigative support behind the event, right? And so you were able to validate right. through whichever tools you were able to validate the the behaviors in concert with one another and in the context of one another right. and realize that you didn't need to escalate or turn it into an incident. That's Correct. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And then yeah, and I mean, that, that level that, of visibility uh, is, is getting more and more important these days, right? I mean, with folks, with folks working from home, um, you know, I'm at least within my organization starting to see a lot of that hybrid use of corporate assets, right? Where you know, folks, folks are literally working more than they ever had when they were working in the office. Now they're now they're leveraging our assets to do some personal things. So be able to correlate that back and and, and have the right information that could determine you know the line between an event and an incident is huge, right? Because you could have right. without the right information, you could have flipped that into an incident right away. Hundred percent. Yeah, and then I I can also add the human uh, aspect to this because. I called up the developer and I had all my evidence uh, in front of me with the tools. And after further discussion with the, with the developer, the developer said that the reason why he was playing YouTube video while querying the database was because he did not want to show his manager idle time. He wanted mm -hmm. to keep something that kept the desktop on all the time. Right. <laughs> so those are the kind of things that you uh, get to experience right now when people are working from home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to, to your point, some of the biggest struggles that we're, we're hearing feedback from our customers is the ability to measure productivity while folks are working from home. Um, you know, because because having a remote workforce for some leaders is, is you know, uncharted territory or uncomfortable. And I'm hearing more and more from customers how how do you see you know productivity? And and I know I've actually seen some some security companies start to make that flip into a traditional sim to starting to have modules where you can see productivity usage for down to the individual level, right? So productivity is is starting to become a hot topic these days with with so much work from home. You know, I think you just not to really not going to turn this into a feature discussion, but for exactly these reasons. We just added VPN stitching to our most recent release because now on the front end and the back end of a VPN endpoint or concentrator, we're able to correlate the far side of that connection with internal asset behaviors. And it turns out yeah. to be very, very useful for exactly those reasons. The lines are really getting blurred as to where the, the sort of edge starts and stops at this point. Big time, big time. Yeah, right. I'm seeing a lot of that conversation. And, and the, the funny part is they're coming to the security team to see if we have tools and insight to yep. offer up productivity, you know, productivity analytics right. and data. So it, it's kind of it's kind of funny that you know for something that would be more of a a, a business type level analytics, they're coming to the security team because they know we have visibility down to the endpoints now. That is correct. And but now, one of the things now, that go ahead, Juan. I was going to say one of the things that my security team have been doing to help with the incident response is trying to see if the tool can collect information as much as possible so that we can determine or, or make a verdict 
on whether something requires some additional attention. Maybe it needs to be approved by the CIO before we continue the investigation. Uh, That is uh, something that has happened in the past. One example is we recently got uh, an email sent to us that was a fish, uh, a fishing attempt, but that attempt, it wasn't malicious the first time. It turned malicious after a couple of hours. Those are the the new types of uh, threats that we're faced with uh, today. And the tool was able to uh, detonate the email, go through a sandbox um, process, and then flag that email as malicious, and then the automation automatically quarantined everything. But what the, the automation tool didn't do is summarize what was the impact. And that's where the team comes in and then uh, complements the tool and grabs all that information, not only from the tool that took action, but also from the other tools in the network, such as ExtraHop and Splunk. Right. As you think about root cause analysis and what other protection mechanisms I need to put in place, that's still a human part of the response process, that you can't automate all of those pieces. Right, right. Yeah, the and one in of, most ca- Sorry, one. I was just going to say one of the one of the outputs of an incident response exercise, Matt, to your point exactly, can be and probably should be an assessment back into your security controls. So you end up enforcing your detection strategy better, assessing your controls in the first place, or maybe even identifying new controls that you can put in place. Yeah, that's precisely what my team uh, does is after an incident happens, we go back and we look at what can we improve. And in most cases, what we're doing uh, as a top uh, task is stitching the data or figuring out a way to pass uh, identifiers between tools. So we're not passing everything that the tool detected because that's what the tool is for. But what we could do is we could create unique IDs or identifiers that we can then use to stitch the information between tool to tool. And that gives us the clear picture of what's going on, what, what happened, who was impacted, and whether we need to escalate this further. Uh, our, our main issue that we are faced with is also uh, making the determination of should I inform the executive team that an incident has happened. And, and so for that, that's another hour discussion on policies and procedures, but it does uh, need to be addressed that we need to augment our security controls to address that. Definitely. There, there's a very live discussion on, on the Discord channel around Jason's point of monitoring yeah. employees. And I was thinking, I'm like, this is a perfect use case for a bot, right? I, somebody's going to deploy a bot at home that is constantly communicating to show that it's connected busy so it looks like they're productive. <laughs> and I'm wondering, right, how, right. Do you, how do you start to detect <laughs> and, and validate whether that's a valid incident or not? Yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah. you know, the, yeah. uh, the, the, product, the productivity side is, is real, right? Again, you know, executives have this gap in this, this fear because they're not used to such a large remote workforce. 
And, you know, I would argue that maybe, you know, the, those executives don't quite have performance metrics um, tuned in as much as they should. So now they're relying on connection times to things, right? So, so you know, conversations that I'm having with executives on leveraging security tools to measure productivity is about, all right, well, what is considered productive, right? I mean, some, some uh, portions of the workforce, LinkedIn is considered productive because they're doing inside sales or pre-sales. Right. But in other parts of the organization, right. that may not be productive, right? Right. There is another incident that uh, I can share with you. Is the, it happened many years ago, early start when I started to use ExtraHop, and it was um, dealing with performance as well. But this one's a little bit different than the first experience that I share with you. On this one, a user was outperforming everyone in the organization. And we wanted to find out why that was. Why was this person a rock star? And after further investigation, again, the tool gave us so much. We need a human interaction. Uh, But at the end, what we found out was that this user was sharing their account with other individuals and then asking them to help them um, finish their work. And so we were able to detect that (laughs) by means of anomaly detection. How often was this person logging in, where they were logging in from, what devices they were logging in from. We were able to correlate that. Um, But it it took a bit of exercise in a team of of security analysts to, to look at that information and determine that it was this person that was sharing their account with other people to be able to complete their work uh, or outshine, you know, everybody else. You know, for me, my, and it's a very sort of stock answer to be fair, but the people that are slacking off at home are going to be the same ones who find ways to slack off in the office. I That's agree, just Matt. The way it works. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Juan, I, I wanted to ask you, um, in uh, incident response process, uh, I've found and have experienced that the organizations that are better at that have developed close relationships across all of the functional business units to be part of that, whether the security incident is you know employee-focused because you know someone's not doing their job or doing something they're not supposed to, whether it's a nation-state threat and everything else in between, it requires collaboration with those other groups within the organization. How have you worked to build relationships with those other groups? In, in the security programs that I've helped develop, they take years um, to, to develop or um, like mature. And one of the things that tends to be the first thing that you put in place is vulnerability management. And, when we work with the organization and individuals on what are the weaknesses that their systems have, that's where we start to develop these relationships. We start to educate them on what are some of the risks and the potential of a breach. And as they help uh, the, the team to address some of these uh, weaknesses in their systems, that's when we start to get into the incident response. If, if an event did occur and it was raised to an incident, uh, we would like you to participate in trying to remediate that as soon as possible. And uh, it has been successful, but it does require us uh, in the security space to educate everyone 
in terms of what the risk is. Uh, a lot of folks think that risks are something that the security team makes up. But when you show them real examples of what has happened in other organizations, then they become open to it and they're, they're part of that team. I, so yeah, and like I, well, I think, Juan, the, uh, what I took from that first and foremost was it takes time to build those relationships, right? It's not just fl yeah. flipping a light switch, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Paul, you know, it, it also takes the business unit to have skin in the game. Yeah. Right. Agreed. So, so between the two, mm -hmm. um, now you're now you're building a level of trust and reliance on each other and partnership and collaboration across the business. Well, guys, I mean, I'll, I'll take it maybe a step further, and I've said this before in different forums, but coordination cost as a thing is something. It's a devastating cost, and it represents very material risk, and nobody talks about it in IT, and we really, really need to start talking about just the cost of coordination and how to to streamline coordination across these, these operational groups. If you, just to get technical for a minute, if you think about the OSI model, right, it's the sort of really well-defined, generally speaking, this well-defined contract of how apps and services are delivered to consumers on a wire. Those protocols are very well established, but then if you flip that model on its side and blow it out horizontally, you have operational groups like the database team or the security team or the network team, and the coordination is broken. And so we're, our organizations from their structures are not nearly as streamlined as the app services and the stacks that we deliver. And so to the extent that you can use data and a common practice and coordinate from a, especially with the leadership um, sponsor, I totally agree with that. Um, you can start to minimize coordination cost and the associated risk. We definitely have a few articles, actually, that's going to hit on some of these points that we've highlighted today, because when we think about resiliency, we think about response and, and the recovery side of, of an incident and a breach, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen. We've got to get those systems back up from an availability perspective. We're going to get into some interesting article discussions. But again... We can't automate all these pieces. There, there is a human element here that we have to continue to think about. And Juan, what I think has been encouraging is some of the examples you shared on where do you spend that human capital because it's so precious. It's and limited I, in an organization. I like Matt's analogy to the OSI model because it means I could tell my UDP joke, except you might not get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to slip it in. Huh? <laughs> I can't. Oh, not. I was waiting for that one. Great opportunity. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, Jason, Paul, any other questions while we have Juan and Matt with us? Uh, good to no, go on my good, side. Yeah. Awesome. Matt, Juan, thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, I appreciate guys. it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. If anyone wants to learn more about Extra Hop, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. We'll take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. With over half of enterprise security budgets going towards detection and response in 2020, the challenge is investing in solutions that can migrate and scale with your business. ExtraHop helps security teams spot threats up to 95% faster and respond 60% more efficiently in hybrid and multi-cloud environments with cloud-native network detection and response. Kick the tires in the full product demo at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop.
The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Paul Asadorian and Jason Albuquerque. Join the Security Weekly mailing list for webcasts and virtual training announcements and to receive your personal invite to our Discord server by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe and click the button to join the list. We got about 750 people plus in our Discord channel and lots of fun interaction during all these uh, live webcasts, including the last segment. In our first July webcast, you'll learn how to stitch and enrich flow data for security use cases with Viavi Solutions. Register for our upcoming webcasts or virtual trainings by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts or visit securityweekly.com forward slash on demand to view all of our previously recorded webcasts, and virtual trainings. Gentlemen, the articles are going to tie very closely to the discussion we just had on the last segment with with Juan and Matt. Um, But I thought the first one was really, really interesting, Jason, because this first article talks about the profile of the post-pandemic CISO and some of the uh, new responsibilities that are going to fall on the CISO's plate. So I'm curious, any of these on your plate? Our lives will never be the same, Matt. They'll never be the same. Now, honestly, I mean, you know, I, I, we talked about it and we hinted on it in the in the last segment is, you know, the, the business is coming to the security team more and more, um, you know, during this this pandemic and, and our responsibilities are growing, right? I mean, the article hits on it pretty well. Um, everything from physical security and getting deeper into that. Things, you know, things my team has been involved in, things like contact tracing. Uh, researching the security around any type of testing devices or automation there, getting involved in policies and protocols on the HR side, right, with work from home. So, so they're really starting to bring us more and more um, in, into, the, into the higher level business decisions and strategies, which is absolutely great. You know Outside what? of the traditional security and compliance um, type type engagements that we're used to. And you know what's interesting? Um, you know, when we spoke with Heather Adkins, she talked about having site reliability engineers or reliability engineers. I'm yep. wondering how that transfers into the higher level executive positions because it sounds like now there's a lot of overlap between the security office, right, and all of the functional teams and business continuity or business reliability, Right. And so I've I've been coining it business resilience, Paul. Yeah. So is there like a business resilience officer that. Yes. Right. Can kind of work very closely with security. But I think this is a a new discipline in in my mind. I, I think you're absolutely right, because, again, we're getting more involved in. BCDR, physical security, mm-hmm. right. tied to HR, like, a, you know, I just said contact tracing. I mean, when would a security team be involved in contact tracing in, in, in the past, right? So, I mean, it's a scenario where we're very well equipped to be able to re- adapt to these new scenarios and, and, you know, bring the business good strategies around, around how to handle this. So I've been coining it, you know, business resilience, 
And, yeah. and really the security and compliance teams have been really thrown at that and, and, and asked by the business to come up with solutions. I think, right. I think it's great, but the responsibilities are becoming bigger and bigger for, for yeah. And I think the larger the organization gets, that may deem a separate department, but Good. it may also be a sub department inside of security in, in smaller organizations. You know, I think back to um, when a lot of the protests and riots were at their peak, mm-hmm. threat intelligence was being used to track that in a business continuity sense. Is my business going to have to shut down? Uh, same thing with quarantine, right? And the things that happened with COVID-19. It's all about preserving the business, using intelligence to, to funnel that through. That was something that I, I didn't realize how far the tentacles went out, right? In a lot of yeah. uh, threat intelligence programs that can help feed not just physical security, but also that speaks to business continuity very much so. Yeah, no, no, agreed. You know, I I think because we were so involved in the recovery side mm. of, of security incidents um, and, and having that ability to have a really tight incident response process, I think that allowed us to kind of eke our way into that that business resilience mode. And, and we were the, you know, the most equipped to do it. Mm. Yeah, and I think resilience is a very interesting term compared to business continuity and disaster mm-hmm. recovery, which are, yeah. you know, older, kind of more boring things. Yeah. And and it's not that Stuff business continuity, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's not that business continuity is not important. Don't get me wrong, but keeping the business resilient in mm. a time of drastic change, which is what we're in, is much more apropos, I think, from a naming perspective than continuity. And it's it's more it encompasses a wide wider variety of disciplines, right? Because you're talking about uh, business continuity, disaster recovery, um, metrics and reporting, regulations and laws, right? I mean, um, you know, helping with with operating models, continuous improvement programs, doing business impact analysis. I mean, there's there's so many di- crisis management, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think I said on one of these shows. Uh, you know, COVID actually had me go into FEMA's website looking at emergency response procedures, right? Right from from the federal government and really fine tuning emergency response. My mentality around emergency response. So, you know, I, I think it, it, it's broadened our horizon. So that just ties into the second article: five mistakes that threaten infrastructure, cybersecurity, and resilience. Um, this one is a little more slanted towards some identity and privilege access yeah. in, in its article, but. There are some definitely interesting uh, mistakes here to avoid, I think, as we think through kind of the crisis and what's happening from a budget shift. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the key piece that I took out of this, you know, aside from the the plugs and the the little marketing pieces of it was, you know, budgets are getting cut. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, if you don't have a good relationship or, you know, with with the the folks who determine the funding levels, um, you're going to have some hard decisions to make, right? So, so I think it, you know, it, it behooves of the security leadership to really bring ROI and total cost of ownership to the table and really bring that discussion about how security can bring either a competitive advantage, operational efficiencies. This is the opportunity to start having the business conversation, right? Because budgets are going to get cut and it's all about how you maximize those dollars to get the best benefit in the end. And you have to be able to sit in front of your leadership and make the case for why you want these investments. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got an interesting position as both the CIO and the CISO, yeah. where point number three, where a lot of organizations are going to run into the CISO reporting to the CIO 
budget conflict yep. really come into play. And how do you, as a CISO, really justify how security can actually benefit the organization when you're losing on the IT spend side? Exactly, right? And, and again, I think coming to the table with things like how is security going to bring competitive advantage to the table, right? I, we've talked about it on, uh, on the show before. Um, you know, I, I don't like being a cost center. I, I, you know, that's, that's just been, um, you know, my mentality since I, I, I started in any type of IT leadership position. I'm always looking to align the business and show the differentiator of my department and how it adds value. So, so coming in with, hey, listen, we may need X amount of investment, but here's the pull through by, by having that investment. Here's how we're going to better the business. Here's how we're going to get more opportunities. Here's how we're going to make security a differentiator. Here's how we're going to gain trust with our customers. You, you know, we really have to start having those kind of conversations in order to preserve the budget. Yeah. Third article hits on the same thing, uh, theme, time to rethink business continuity and cybersecurity. I mean, yep. they actually point out, you know, how do you bring these two disciplines together? You know, before I was officially in security back in 96, I was more on the continuity side. Mm. And I, I, it was funny because I'd worked in both nuclear power plants and, and also in oil and gas for a period of time. That was my early IT career. And my project that I had before I went into security, this was the project right before I got into security in 96, was I built the business continuity disaster recovery plan for one of the large refiners down mm -hmm. in, in New Orleans. And you, that was a very big part of plant operations was the business continuity disaster recovery side of the equation, right? If a hurricane came up the Gulf and wiped out the plant, what'd you mm -hmm. need to do to get refining back online? It was, it was a huge business critical activity that sure. we kind of forgot about for a while. And then you have security goes off on its path. And now you're starting to see this reemergence of how do you integrate these two disciplines back together? Because any attack could create an outage of some sort that has to be planned for and, and resolved quickly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, disruption can come in many forms, right? Disruption to the business, and this is why I keep talking about business resilience, disruption to the business can come in natural disaster, right? It can come in a, a, a business type scenario where let's say you fail an audit, right? Or it could come in a ransomware attack. I mean, think about it, throw in a ransomware attack to your story. It could have brought down the entire plant. So this is where we're starting to, like I said, converge. We're all starting to converge in. It just gives you, you know, it talks about some of the restructuring and some of the alignment that you're going to have to do, people, process, et cetera. It's a yep. decent article. I thought it was interesting. It's, it's on this whole theme of response and resilience. And it's just interesting how the last segment in these first three articles really kind of uh, align yep. that discussion. Yeah. Uh, the other one we've been talking about, remote work, uh, set to remain, um, but so do management challenges. And this is interesting. This was a, a survey that was done. Uh, 2,200 businesses globally, including 500 in the UK, by Robert Walters. And what you're seeing is kind of these mixed reviews of what employers want versus what employees yes. want. Yep. And and I thought the stats were pretty interesting here because the businesses are like, no, 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 we want at least half of our workforce back, right? right. It, it, on site, on premise, 57% uh, of senior leadership preferred traditional ways of working. But on the employee side, it's like no 87% want to stay yeah. in some remote capacity. There is a disconnect 
in organizations right now. And, and I swear it comes down to that hot topic of the last segment. It's productivity, right? I, I think leaders need to be more comfortable in how they're managing metrics around productivity to show the product so they feel comfortable with a remote workforce, right? I mean, w- with my team, I have I have the utmost confidence that my team is productive because we measure things like, um, you know, our, our, our incidents, our tickets, our, our projects. I mean, we're, we're managing projects like a PMO team, right? So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I have the utmost confidence in, in, in the metrics for my team being productive. Does every other manager? Because the number here, 64% are concerned, of leaders are concerned with employee productivity. That's a lot. That's a lot of leaders concerned with employee productivity. I, th- I think it's eventually going to plateau, right? I think we see, you know, on the graph, we see this really high percentage of people mm-hmm. working from home. I don't think it's going to dip back down, you know, at or below where it was. There's going to be some plateau. Yeah. And where it makes sense, people are still going to work from home. And, uh, you know, eventually as time goes on, uh, you're not going to see this kind of drastic uh, work from home experience. Yeah. Yeah. But, but and, and again, to- I mean, I think, I think with a little bit of investment and in, in the article kind of touches on a little bit and a little bit better technologies and analytics around the workforce and around their productivity and, and that visibility to the leadership may add a level of comfort. Right. And I think that's the point, Jason, there has to be a level of comfort yeah. with how to measure productivity in a remote workforce yes. and understand and, and get comfortable with those metrics and in yeah. whatever shape they take, right? That 100%. ties into this. Yeah. And that it ties into this next article, uh, protecting remote workers, productivity and performance, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the onus is actually on the management team, the leadership team to make sure that you're engaged. You're still making those connections with the employees that you're not allowing them to continue to distance themselves in the, in, in, in the workforce, because when that happens, the stats that are in this next article talk about how innovation and other things drop just off the charts yeah. when that virtual distancing happens. And I think it's it requires the leadership right to make the effort to continue to figure out how best to engage with the remote right. workforce to keep productivity high. Oh, 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, we're humans and we're social. So, so we need to have that aspect of our work life. Otherwise, it's not balanced, right? And, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, these stats are scary, right? I mean, when, when folks become disconnected from their teams, from their colleagues, from the workforce, um, you know, the, the term super stressor was used. And if you look at some of the stats there, you know, innovation, productivity, uh, you know, ability for collaboration, project success, all those things go down astronomically. So yeah, it's our job as leaders to make sure we're keeping that level of social connection, right? I mean, I'll tell you, with meetings with my team, I very rarely start the meeting with conversations about business out of the gate. It's, it's hey, you know, how's everything going at home? How, how are people doing? How's, how are things in your state compared to our state? You know, what's, what's the news in, in Texas? What's the news in Connecticut or New York? And it's, it, it's really just making that, that, that personal connection again. Um, that, that you could have had in an office or when people were able to travel and come visit. I mean, even if you met, you know, physically with folks once a quarter, you still had that opportunity to go out to dinner, have lunch together, have that social interaction where you connect. 
Yeah, I, you know, the one that was really scary is trust declines by more than 80% when those other stats. Yeah. And to your point, I think this is all about engagement and, and how you engage. And, and when you engage, spend that first five, 10 minutes. Absolutely. Hey, how was your weekend? How are how, how are the kids? How are you hanging in there? What's going on? It's interesting that all the conversations revolve around some aspects of where are you? What's your environment? Because it, the environment's so different location to location. Even in Colorado, for example, mm-hmm. what downtown Denver is experiencing is very different than what I'm experiencing down here closer to the Springs. And we're in the same state. So there's so much variation. And it, it it's a way to just kind of, you know, talk to people and understand kind of yeah. how are things going? What's the situation like? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean that, you know, that trust declines by more than 80%. You're absolutely right. That's probably the worst metric because once trust is eroded, it's so hard to get back, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the hardest things to be able to, to to pull back within a team. So yeah, I mean, do do the diligence, do you know, do the things or try your best to do the things that you would normally do if if folks weren't 100% remote. I mean, you know, my my team jumped on and and we watched the the, the SpaceX launch together. You know what I mean? Where we didn't have to. It was after hours. It was, you know, so. Right. But that's that's the type of stuff. Just those little things matter. Yeah. And, you know, I think the good news for, for me and Paul, at least at Security Weekly, is we, we meet with the team. I mean, we have normal, regular scheduled meetings. Remember, mm-hmm. three weeks out of every month, I was remote anyways. I just mm-hmm. haven't been able to take the fourth week and, and get to Providence and, and be in studio. But we still have those meetings. So the good news is, we are interacting with the employees throughout the week and we're continuing, you know, to make sure that, that the needs of our employees are taken care of. So we've been in a position like that, but if you weren't in that mode already, it's hard to schedule the time, schedule those meetings and have that interaction. Yeah. You're, you're, you're changing your schedule. You're changing your tactics, Mm -hmm. but it's gotta be done in this scenario. It's gotta be done. Yeah, definitely. Uh, last article, we talked a little bit about this last week around negotiating skills. Uh, this one is very focused on tactics for CISOs. I thought the title was a little interesting because I think these would work regardless of which leader you are oh, yeah. in an organization. I don't think they're necessarily just for the CISO. No, right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely um, any type of management level. I mean, you're, you're going to be one of, one of the key ones for me is recognize it's negotiation, not a debate. Right. And that's, that's working with the team for, to achieve a goal, to achieve a co- an, an outcome. Right. So, um, you know, I, I thought that was a great one to take back. Don't work. Well, don't walk into meetings. Think you're, it's a debate thinking that you have to, you know, shore up your posture and be on the defense to defend something. When, when you're working with business units, you know, it's, it's, it's the art of negotiation. It really is. It's, it's let's come up with a solution that fits the needs and gets you to an outcome. And I think that one ties in with the last one, actually, which is don't aim to win. Yes. Because if you win wholly, then somebody's going to lose. Somebody's right. Losing. And I think, right, exactly. And in a negotiation, you're trying to create the win-win scenario, right? And yeah, so- right. I think the first one and the last one really tie it together for me is recognize it. it's not a debate. It, there's not a winner and a loser. You want to come yeah. up with a, 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 a an agreement yeah. that yeah, both I mean, sides I, can win. I looked at that. It's all about the definition of win, right? Because if we're on the same team, we're winning together. But don't don't have a confrontational win. Like I'm personally going to win this debate, right? <laughs> 
against another business leader or another another manager or another peer, another colleague. I mean, if, if we're in the same company, we're on the same team, we need to be going toward the same goal, the same outcome. But that's a great point, Jason, because I think a lot of the works on uh, looking at negotiations don't look at it from an internal organizational perspective, right? If you're in a negotiation to buy or sell something, trade some good or service that's between you as an individual and some other individual that you have no idea maybe who they are, if you're buying a house, mm -hmm. right? Things like that. The negotiation tactics are very applicable to those situations. When you get internally, you've got... Uh, an advantage. And one tactic that I always use is to have the meeting before the meeting happens, right? You go to the people yeah. who are signed up for the meeting and you talk with them. What If I were to propose this, what would your objectives be and why? Yep. And what's most important to you that you need so that we can come to some sort of compromise, right? Have those discussions before the meeting happens, right? right. Mm -hmm. It was always something I learned very yeah, early on. Tried to apply but that as much the, as possible. That's the collaborative mentality, right? You didn't go into yeah. it thinking you're buying a car and you need to, you know, cut $10,000 off of that bottom line because, you know, you want to save as much money as possible. At the end of the day, you're going in there saying, I want a good outcome. So I'm going to, I'm going to have conversations with all of the different stakeholders, number one, to show them that I care. And, and, and number two, to accept their feedback and take their feedback. So that way you can come to the meeting with a good strategy and a good solution. And, and that's, you know, it's actually that piece that they hide from you when you buy a car because you mentioned it, Jason, right? They hide their true intentions, yeah. their true incentives, right? I mean, in every sense of the word, um, to, to figure out what they want, right? You've got to research it and figure out generally what maybe car dealers want to negotiate mm -hmm. something like purchasing a car. Internally, I, I can go to, you know, Bob and HR and Mary and finance and say, hey, I want to propose this. Like, what do you what do you think? Right. Like, what would you know, yeah. let's work together as a team. And then when we get in the meeting, we've all thought about it a little and can have a better outcome as a team. Like you said, Jason. Yeah. And, and that ties into one of the other ones, Paul. It's it's in, it's envision what you want. But when you read past that, it's with the caveat. And it says, define what success looks like for me and all the parties involved. Right. Yeah, and it's understanding what everyone else's goals are, right? right? And success means for them. Mm -hmm. Success right. for the the finance team is, you know, completely different, right? They're like I, number one thing on their mind. What is it? You got to figure that out first before you can start right. negotiating any kind of security, right? Their number one goal is to make sure my numbers are accurate and make sure I meet my deadlines for X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z. How do I help them do that better and more securely? You got it. That's why that preparation is so important. That's why I asked you the first mm -hmm. question the first day. I was at Tenable, Paul. What do you think about this, right? And yeah, you gave exactly. me the. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. Yeah. We, I wanted to know, right? right? What Somebody would be the reaction was, if we did XYZ? Hmm, that's interesting. Let's brainstorm that for a little while, right? I mean, it's similar to threat modeling your meeting, right? <laughs> or your project. Right. Yeah. You have thoughts in your mind. You, you have an approach you'd want to take, but you need to go vet it with the other stakeholders. Yeah. And in your case, you, you, you had the Nessus product line at the, at the time, mm -hmm. and I wanted to make some major changes to it, but I had to ask before we just went and did that. Right. It worked out in the long run. So it that's did. Good. Yeah, it was good. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for the news and articles today. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening, and we'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly.